This podcast is sponsored by Grippable, the measurable, mobile and motivating device for weakened hand and arms. Bringing some serious fun to your rehab with Grippable. Visit www.grippable.co to buy or try now or email Grippable's friendly team at hello at grippable.co. Welcome back to the SR Times podcast. In this very special episode, I was very lucky to be joined once again by thrombectomy expert and friend of SR Times, Dr. Sanjeev Nayak, and former patient of Dr. Nayak's stroke survivor, Peter Huber. Sanjeev and Peter lead this episode as they discuss thrombectomy and how it saved Peter's life, having a stroke during the peak of the COVID pandemic, and partaking in stroke research. You'll hear more from myself towards the end of the episode as I talked to Peter about his rehabilitation post-stroke and how he was able to do it through the pandemic. We start this episode with Peter telling us about his stroke. My stroke in June 2020 was during COVID, which presented all sorts of additional difficulties. Um, I was fortunate in the sense that my stroke fell between the first and the second lockdowns. But obviously, my wife couldn't come to the hospital with me. And um, it, it, there are additional challenges. Uh, but, yeah, e- everything worked in terms of the critical care and uh, getting to hospital quickly. So I was very lucky indeed. So, Peter, I want to just touch base on, because um, we, we, we were trying to understand what the pro- what the problems the patients faced during the pandemic was it how easy or how difficult was it for you to come to the hospital during that time was it was were there any barriers were there any very worried about thinking okay should i really go to the hospital or i mean these were some of the things patients told us that they were worried to come to the hospital were there any of these issues which you which um, um which bothered you or were, or you just decided that you have to come and because you had such a serious, uh, you know, symptoms going on. What, what, was, what were your thought process at that time? Well, having spoken to a lot of other stroke survivors since my stroke, mm-hmm. I was fortunate in a way that I'd had such a major stroke. Um, it was a large vessel occlusion and cut off the blood supply to the whole of one side of my brain. Mm-hmm. So I had all the classic symptoms of, arm, face, speech, and my wife, when she came to see why the dogs were barking, the family lying on the lawn, and realised I'd had a stroke, so she called an ambulance. And when they came, it was obvious I'd had a major stroke. Um, So the decision was made there, I think, to bring me straight to the Royal Stoke instead of Leyden Hospital. so I, I was conscious, but not really aware of what was going on. Um, but I, I think my pathway in that respect was um, not affected by COVID at all, apart from the fact that uh, Vanessa couldn't accompany me to the, the hospital. So it was, in many respects, much harder for her than it was for me. Yes, it's always harder. We see it's much harder for the families than the patients themselves because families are the ones who can see you suffering from the impact of stroke. And most many times the stroke um, patient himself isn't 
aware because of the way it affects the patients. They are, um, you know, some of them, of course, are completely aware, but some of them don't know what's going on. They are in a very, what you call, in a dazed state, and they don't really understand yeah. what's going on. And they come to the hospital, and then, uh, you know, some, if you have, if you're lucky enough to get a treatment with thrombectomy and make a full recovery, then they are completely aware afterwards, you know, but during that time, they are not aware. So I completely can understand what you have been going through. So what happened after you? Do you have any recollection of the events after you came to the hospital? Do you have any remember? Do you have any memories of what happened in the hospital? I can remember the bits of the ambulance journey because I I knew the route they were taking very well, and I was trying to sort of work out where we were. Um, so that bit of the brain was working, and I remember being worried as the ambulance went through the village that I'd be waking up all the neighbours with a siren. Um, it's funny the things you worry about. But the only recollection I've got in the hospital is being surrounded by uh, clinicians, paramedics, um, and someone saying, and I was aware I was, I was needing to consent to something. Uh, mm. that, that's my memory. I've no idea whether that's accurate or um, I've created it after the event. But um, being told I had a stroke and asked um, if I was happy to have a procedure, I think that's a, a true memory. That's that's most that's what most patients tell us as well, Peter. It's nothing. Uh, you know, unusual. And I'm I'm glad that, you know, you have made such a good recovery. But uh, before we I ask you about your recovery, tell do you remember uh, anything about the procedure or what, what was the last first time you started getting back your, you know, remembering everything and coming to the realization that you have had a stroke and you're kind of making a recovery from the stroke? Um, it's all very fragmented and um... I've got bits of memory from nothing of the procedure at all. Mm. Uh, I remember coming around after the procedure and being asked to perform various tests, like touching my fingers with my thumb. And um, then that, that must have been the same day, I think, because I... I remember spending most of the night desperately trying to um, touch my fingers with my thumb so I could um, show I could do it when the next person came around and asked me. Mm. So it, it's bizarre, really, the things you remember. And after that, I remember uh, Indira coming in and asking me some questions and explaining a bit about what had happened. So I think at that point I was clearly aware I'd had a stroke, but not thinking at all about what the implications of that might be. Mm. I was completely in the moment and just focused on being able to do what was asked of me. Mm. Um, so Indira was testing my memory by asking me about mm. the features of 
various local races because we're both runners. We yes. both knew the yes. same courses. So yeah. I was able to answer his questions, which I think was reassuring for him. And That's um, good. So, yeah, sorry, gone. No, so Peter, so you came in completely paralyzed and you had your speech, you couldn't speak and, uh, you know, you had a significant, what you call a severe disabling life-threatening stroke. So you had this procedure. So after how many days of the procedure were you discharged home? By late morning of the the Monday, the day after the stroke, the physios had me out of bed and I was walking up and down stairs very tentatively with with them hovering by me and um, I, I gradually regained confidence and you know was able to speak and um, I was discharged about four o'clock I think that Monday afternoon so I was in hospital for possibly 36 hours that's that's fantastic uh, peter because you know just to uh, make people who are listening to this aware that you know the kind of stroke you suffered it was life threatening um, it was you had a chance that 50% chance without treatment you would have probably not survived you know or had us um, uh, even uh, if the treatment didn't fail if the treatment didn't work um, the usual standard conventional tre treatment would have been intravenous thrombolysis, giving a clot-busting medication. And that we know in large vessel occlusions work on only 10 to 20% of the patients. In that case, you would have had a permanent disability. And to go home after, a this is a new procedure, thrombectomy, uh, in 36 hours on your feet is something which is, you know, which the treatment shows that treatment is remarkable in the sense it makes a huge difference to someone's life. So, um, and the the sad part is not everywhere in the country you have this form of, you, know, you get this, this treatment. And especially they don't get treatment even now if it's out of working hours or if it's in a weekend in many, in, in many places. Uh, I think there are, few, there are centers which are coming up now. More and more centers are offering 24-7 service, but not all of them. So do you feel um, that it was, you know, uh, being, uh, it's what I, what I, the way I would phrase it, uh, phrase it is, there's a postcode lottery in place. So you are one of the lucky people to have been in Stoke and to have made it to Royal Stoke Hospital and to be back home in 36 hours. So what do you think? Um, you know, how would, what would be your views of those patients who don't receive this treatment? And you know, what do you think should happen for for you know for 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 such kind of uh, patients or such scenarios where we have these problems? The, the more I look into the circumstances of my stroke and my pathway and outcome, the, the more incredibly lucky I feel uh, because it is absolutely a postcode lottery. If I had the stroke in a, a different region of the UK, say East Anglia or... Um, um, the percentage of patients that get access to from rectomy is, is frighteningly low. It's below 1% in near 
the target of 10% of patients getting a thrombectomy in, in London. So, yeah, I, I was incredibly fortunate. Um, the I've joined quite a few stroke support groups. Um, and uh, I, I do suffer quite a lot from survivor guilt because I'm so much fitter and able and sort of carrying on a, a normal life uh, than most of the other people in the stroke groups. You know, they're all great people. They're all cracking on. They're all um, making their own recoveries. But if the strokes left them with a physical disability or they, they simply aren't able to walk anymore, um, you know, they're in a far worse position than me. And had they been eligible for embrectomy and just didn't manage to get access to it, um, that's a really tough one for them. The one of the best things about the thrombectomy is it's left me able to put something back in, you know, in terms of uh, working with the Stroke Association uh, through their Stroke Voices and Research, contributing to a number of thrombectomy research studies. And, uh, you know, any opportunity I get, I do try and, um, you know, use my personal experience to push the case for improving access to thrombectomies. I mean, Peter, you are one of the, you know, I, I can't tell you how much happy me and my team are to see you uh, actually recover from your stroke. This is the best, uh, most satisfying thing as as doctors uh, or as healthcare, you know, professionals, we uh, can experience because seeing someone like you who come who come into the hospital in a, such a bad uh, state, having such a serious stroke, and walking out of the hospital in 36 hours makes it makes us feel it's worth it. What we are doing, coming uh, coming in the middle of the night and to do these procedures and having such a good outcome for the patients. At the same time, I would also say patients like yourself have been our role, our role, you know, kind of a role models for many because not many people speak up about their stroke after they you know, recover from it. They just want to carry on and just move on. But you have done a lot of things to raise awareness around this. You have worked with the Stroke Association. You have done a lot of physical activities, such as running a marathon and all, you know, all these things, which are inspirational for many. So can you tell us something about some of the work you have done? Uh, you, you know, you, you said you have been a part of a few trials. You have, uh, you have worked with the, the savings, Saving Brains campaign with the Stroke Association and you, and you've done a lot of things so it will be very inspirational to hear the things you have done to kind of raise awareness and the things you have done to uh, support uh, the initiative of uh, you know uh, which has been uh, um, you know run by organizations like stroke association so can you just brief us on that yeah sure um I mentioned earlier survivor guilt, and I, I do sometimes worry about sounding as if I'm bragging, but in this context, I am I am. So I could have died, I could have been permanently disabled, and um, I'd love to be able to say, Sanjeev, that I'm running marathons again. Um, but I, I have run two half marathons this year. Uh, still debating whether at 64 I should even be considering another marathon. Um, 
but yesterday I, I swam the length of a local lake about sorry to interrupt you peter I'll, 64 is not an age you you can carry on as long as you want to do whatever you wish to do you know there are people <laughs> the people who climb everest i i heard a last the the, the last this year somebody cl climbed everest was 73 so age is not a limit i think you're doing really well and it's really satisfying for people like me to see that so so you can carry on doing what you're doing and i would encourage you to do so as well <laughs> right um that's that's a wonderful statement sanji for me to take away from my stroke surgeon that i can go out and do what i like so i feel compelled to try another marathon I'll, I'll probably stop short of climbing everest <laughs> but um yeah the um to come back to the original point um i i was really fit and active before the stroke which happened when i was age 60. i'd run quite a few marathons i'd done ultra marathons a lot of wild swimming a lot of cycle sportives so the stroke was completely out of the blue um, and uh, quite hard to, to work out why I'd had it. It's because of an undiagnosed heart condition. And um, so walking out of the hospital after 36 hours on the Monday, the Tuesday morning, so this is 48 hours after the stroke, I was up crept out of bed without waking my wife and took the dogs out um, up to the local canal. And um, I was on my way, my way back home with the dogs when I met my wife coming to see where on earth I'd got to and what on earth I was doing. And um, she must have been relieved, but at, at that point in time, she was really angry that I was pottering off by myself and um, acting as normal. But that's how quick the recovery was. And um, physically, it's, it's stayed pretty much the same. I, I haven't quite got this stamina and coordination I used to have, but that might just be old age. Um, the impact of the stroke has been minimal. Uh, psychologically, it's been a bit harder to deal with because it it does count as a near-death experience, I think, and it's a bit of a shock to the system. But, um, yeah, getting active again has been a huge part of my recovery as well, I think. And before the stroke, I'd spent most of my career working in universities in a research support role. So I kind of understood how research worked. So when I got the opportunity with the Stroke Association to um, join their Voices in Research program, which links stroke survivors to researchers that are developing projects around stroke, um, that again was a godsend for me because I, I was able to contribute quite a bit from my previous career. And I contributed to, in terms of, of being a reviewer from a, a patient perspective to probably pushing about a dozen studies now. Um, the most pertinent one, I think, Andy, is actually up in your neck of the woods, 
out of Newcastle University. And that's a project called Speedy, which is all about improving the pathway from the 999 call to getting someone into a thrombectomy centre if that's appropriate treatment for them as quickly as possible. Uh, and again, that, that really chimes with my experience. Uh, a lot of people will go to the local hospital and then get transferred to a stroke centre. And, and this study is all about just um, speeding up that process and getting the, <coughs> excuse me, getting the paramedics uh, who attend the 999 call to make a judgment as to whether a stroke victim might be worth taking direct to a stroke centre. And, uh, you know, from my own personal experience, that's an absolute lifesaver. Um, yeah, you mentioned the Stroke Association, Sanjeev. I'm doing quite a bit of work with them around their Saving Brains initiative. They published the first report on that last year. And um, at that point in time, I'm just looking at the figures now, the national target for thrombectomy was 10% of stroke victims. And at that time, it was 2.8%. That's It's creeping up slowly. It's about a bit over 3% now. But that's such a long way from... 10%. Uh, so two thirds of patients that will be eligible for a thrombectomy are missing out, uh, which is a lot down to the postcode lottery and the limited number of centres. So the fact, you know, more people being treated means that's just the existing centres, I guess putting in more effort, you know, Sanjeev, you mentioned earlier, you know, you and the team are rushing into the, the theatre in the middle of the night to save people's lives. Um, so to, to hit this target, there, there is a need for investment in additional capacity. Um, and I mentioned earlier, you know, this postcode lottery, the regional variation is immense. So if you get a thrombectomy, it really depends where you live and when you have it. If you have it at a weekend, your chance of getting a thrombectomy is still a lot lower than during the working day. Um, one other stark figure here is, um, this is from the Stroke Association, if the current rate of thrombectomy continues as is, that means by 2930, the end of the decade, something like 50,000 people who should have had a thrombectomy won't be able to access one. And, you, you know, that's, that's people that could have been put back on their feet and able to get back to life and you know if they're of working age they'd be able to get back to work um, but they're likely to be have been left 
far more disabled than I am, if they survived, in fact. So it, it means a huge amount to me just to be able to, to put that, that back and, uh, you know, stick my head above the parapet and, and shout about from Vectomy. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. That that was, you know, you made you you've been very clear in in explaining, uh, you know, what, the some of the issues. But now I want to ask you from your from a patient's perspective. This is I think very important to listen, for us to hear. What do you think should happen? I mean, what do you think uh, should happen to address some of the issues that are currently you know we are facing with the low thrombectomy numbers also seeing less you know less patients being treated and we discuss some of the issues relating to funding and other aspects so what do you think as a patient you'd like to see and how do you think the you know the these issues can be addressed i'm not just talking about healthcare professionals but also from the government perspective how, what do you think should happen and uh, you know how can this be you know kind of addressed i think from from the perspective of the nhs and the healthcare professionals. Um, I have just got no comment other than um, if you have a stroke, there's fantastic teams and people out there, wherever you go, who will do their best to give you the best chance of um, surviving and living as normal life as possible. Um, and, you know, the pathway I followed demonstrates that. So I think the, the speedy trial is an important one because that's just making a very simple tweak to current protocols and procedures to make an additional assessment when someone's clearly had a stroke and, and fast-track them where appropriate. So that... That's a really powerful study. And when, when that's complete and the full results come out, I think that will show that um, there are some tweaks to the system that, that might make a difference. But fundamentally, um, I forget the precise numbers, it's something like 24 stroke centres in the UK or in England. It's not a huge number. And a lot of those don't, offer a 24-7 service so that's crucial to increase the capacity because I, I know Sanjeev you and your team will be working beyond uh, your existing capacity and putting in a lot of extra hours and things so there's a, a desperate need to get more centres and um you know, the economics of it are really simple. If you save someone's life and they minimise their disability, that does allow them to get back and work. And um, instead of being a, a burden on the state, they're contributing. So the, the numbers look very clear to me that it's, it's a really good investment. Um, there's a, an upcoming government strategy, a major conditions strategy. I think, Andy, you touched on this earlier for Scotland. Um, so 
I know the Stroke Association are really keen to see a, a plan for full thrombectomy rollout in that upcoming strategy. And, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, we did a lot of coverage. Uh, it was a couple of months ago where there was doubts towards the, the Scottish government. We're going to make a lot of cuts towards uh, stroke treatments and especially thrombectomy. So we did, a, in collaboration with not just the Stroke Association, but charities such as Chest Heart and Stroke Scotland, um, just as an open letter to the government to say, you know, this is how important these treatments are to patients like yourself, Peter, where you're able to walk out of hospital 36 hours later after what could have been a, a life-changing stroke. Yeah, it's... um. Everyone understands the the pressures the system's under from all directions, but uh, stroke is such a common condition, unfortunately. Um, and like you said, you know, if you can minimise disability and get people back to a normal life, that it's so much better for the individual, for their families. Um, but for them to be able to contribute still to society. And that's not to say that stroke survivors everywhere aren't making a contribution, but a thrombectomy can really make a huge difference to what they're able to do. <coughs> Excuse me. The, um, the dreaded NHS workforce plan that... Um, keeps being promised but hasn't appeared yet. Um, funding the NHS so that they can deal with increasing workloads, you know, not just around from veteran and stroke, but, but generally uh, will have a huge difference because the system as a whole is under so much pressure. And Sanjeev, I don't know if you're able to say anything more about this. The uh, there's been from me quality reviews at a local level. Mm -hmm. um, and they're due to be published with recommendations soon. So there's, um, there's a need for local health systems to look at those recommendations and, um, again, improve what they can and, and put pressure on central government uh, to to fund more centres and more equipment. Mm -hmm. But, you know, fundamentally the, the key resource in all of this is, is the clinical staff. Yeah, yeah, I think we... I agree. I think uh, there are a lot of things that needs to be done at the same time to, you know, address this issue. This is not just one. You can't pin it down to one particular, uh, you know, you know, problem. There are multiple problems which needs to be addressed. Every uh, every region has got its own issues. So I think the issues has to be addressed in a way that looking at individual needs of individual centers and individual. Uh, regions that would be i think the more more appropriate way to go forward now one last thing i want to ask you peter before you know i you know pass on to andy is uh, how does your family feel about all this your wife what does she feel about 
the 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 whole thing about your the way you had the stroke, your treatment, and the recovery you've made. What does what what is what does how does she view all this? Hugely positively. Well, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, it would have um, been as life changing for her and our son and daughter had I been severely disabled mm. as a result of the stroke. Um, and I, I suspect quite a lot of the time, and, and this is entirely positive, she forgets I've had a stroke. You know, there's no obvious signs I've had a stroke. Um, and, you know, I, I get fatigued more quickly and uh, there are other impacts uh, sort of psychologically of, of having such a, a major event in your life. But um, I can generally, you know, crack on and and contribute um so yeah i, I look at other friends locally in the stroke groups i go to who had a stroke and it that their partners and carers are still there for them but their role as a partner has completely changed they've changed from a partner to a carer Whereas um, I'm in the happy position that, you know, I, I, I'm still me, I can still do pretty much what I could do before. And um, it's, yeah, it's just made a, the frombectomy has basically been a, saved them from being part of a life changing event as well. Mm. Thank, thank you, Peter. I mean, it's been, you know, I would say, uh, you, you, you are an inspirational patient. You have, you know, done a lot to raise awareness around thrombectomy, and I hope you carry on doing what you're doing. And uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's for us. It's very, like I said, it's the best thing I can see in when a patient, uh, you know, recovers and does a lot to give back to, you know, to the cause you know for the cause which we are we are all fighting together for so thank you for all you're doing and um, good luck to you for your future uh, you know for your future you know whatever you do uh, so now i just want to pass back to andy and see if andy's got any other questions andy can i just jump in there quickly yeah, um, obviously to say thank you all over again to sanjeev and and the whole team at the royal stoke um I met Sanjeev for the first time post-op last year and I couldn't think what else to do when I met him other than to, um, well, just give you a big hug, Sanjeev. I couldn't think how else to thank you. I know. We, I remember I had the same feeling when I saw you at the Stroke Association meeting at the House of Lords, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that was... Uh, it was, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't... And I saw it, was, it, it felt so good to see Peter, you know, Coming, uh, come in there, speak about his, you know, speak about his experience, and you know, kind of meet everyone out there. And uh, you know, it was, it was really, uh, I would say, such a great feeling to, to, you know, to experience all that. So, yeah, I think I, I gave a big hug, hug to Peter as well because that was, that's how I felt when I saw him. So happy. So thank you, Peter, for that. 
And um, yeah, I'm sure not all stroke survivors have got a uh, a stroke consultant, a surgeon that treated them that is also out in the Himalayas climbing ridiculous mountains to raise money for their local hospital charity. I just thought I'd drop that one in, Sanji, for you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, thank you very much for for joining us, Sanjeev, even given uh, your expertise and and Peter for letting us know what it's like being a, a patient that's been through thrombectomy and then being able to walk out so close to the time of the treatment. I've just got a, a couple of questions on the the kind of the rehabilitation side, and I mean especially having to go through that during the pandemic. What was that like having to go through? the rehabilitation from from a stroke during during a global pandemic with hindsight it was a lot tougher than i thought it was at the time the local rehabilitation services were really good um and i i had home visits from various therapists physiotherapists occupational therapists speech therapists that all happened within a, a week or two of the stroke. And, um, you know, the support network was immense. And again, I suspect there's a bit of a postcode lottery there. Uh, the one bit that was harder to access, and this isn't a criticism of the service, it's just the huge pressure they were under, was the the sort of cognitive therapy, uh, mental health side. Um, there was a bit of a time lag, but about six months after the stroke, I just got knocked for six um, for, for various reasons. And it was really hard to access sort of mental health support. Um, and I think a lot of this is just about having had an emergency procedure, having been fit and healthy, and then suddenly very nearly dropping dead. Um, the, there's quite a lot to process and deal with there. And um, that's that's got better since. Um, um, and for various reasons, my wife and I decided to um, retire early and moved to North Wales and again I've been really fortunate there's a, a fantastic service in North Wales called the North Wales Brain Injury Service and they offer a lot of therapy and support to anyone that's had a uh, a brain injury of any description so it could be a, a tumour, a road accident, a fall um, or a stroke and um, that's that's made a big difference as well. And a big bit of it about being a stroke survivor is you get to meet a lot of other stroke survivors if you join support groups. Um, I'm in a happy position that I can, you know, offer people lifts down to the local stroke group. Um, I can. I can drive still, so I can get myself to various groups across 
North Wales and um, it is good to share experiences and you know that informs a lot of what I'm able to talk about as a stroke survivor. I was one of the lucky ones with a thrombectomy and there were so many other people that weren't quite as fortunate. Their stroke symptoms weren't so clear cut so it could have been days or weeks before someone realised they'd actually had a stroke. Um, it's it's complete spectrum. But, yeah, as, as we came out of COVID, the support services are still under huge pressure, especially at the GP level. Um, the hospital-based services have, despite the pressure they've been under, I think they've been there for anyone with an acute need. Uh, but the GP service and that sort of local rehabilitation has been, and I think probably still is, harder to access. You mentioned uh, that you, you you can fully drive. Was there, was there any struggles with that, Peter, um, whilst re- rehabilitating from stroke? Um, not really. I mean, I couldn't drive for three months anyway, and it took me a while to build up the confidence to drive again. I'm far more patient now than I used to be when I was stuck behind a cautious driver, just in case it's me. Um, and uh, I am probably a, a better driver now than I was before. But um, again, I think I was I was lucky in that respect because some people have had a lot of challenges with bureaucracy in terms of getting their license back or being able to drive again, and. Um, Obviously, a lot of people simply aren't able to drive after a stroke. So it was pretty straightforward uh, in my case. So I know, uh, Sanjeev, and you, you mentioned that, that your, uh, your kind of stroke anniversary is, is, is coming up. Is that, is, do you use that as any time of kind of reflection or, or anything like that? Or I do. Um, I think partly because the stroke was Midsummer's Day. Um, you know, it's not just a random day in the year. It's it's some it's an event. It's something that other people celebrate for completely different reasons. Um, and before my stroke, I used to work a bit with disabled charities and groups. And um, I, I knew a paratriathlete. Uh, she was world number one in her category. And she always used to celebrate with friends the anniversary of her cycle accident that caused her disability. Um, I think it's a way of celebrating the fact she survived and 
she was still able to do the things she loved and be good at them. So I think, yeah, it, it's a time of reflection and being thankful again. And it's it's just nice it coincides with Midsummer's Day. So I guess my, my final question is, Peter, is just how are you now and, and how, how is life? I know you've been busy running marathons. So how, how are you? Half marathons. <laughs> I, I really feel compelled now to start training for a marathon. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good. Uh, I didn't get off scot-free, but compared to how I would have been without a thrombectomy, life is really good. I, I mentioned before I do get fatigued a bit more easily, and um, there are certain things in common to all stroke survivors. I think everyone that's had a brain injury where some things are a bit more challenging, sort of crowded, noisy environments, and um, being able to concentrate for long periods of time. But physically, I, I reckon I could hold my own with quite a few... 64-year-olds, 63-year-olds that haven't had a stroke. Uh, so, yeah, running, cycling, swimming. Um, and I think mentally before my stroke, I, I was kind of under, under the delusion I was um, a 60-year-old trapped in a 25-year-old's body. Um, and that delusion is still there. I just think I'm a... 63 year old now trapped in a 35 year old's body <laughs> so that's not a bad place to be really not at all i mean a half marathon is is a very very impressive feat still i mean i couldn't even imagine myself doing that and i'm 26 <laughs> but you've got a great north run up there andy <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i should probably do it at some point in my lifetime but <laughs> I think if there's, I've got a long way to go before I can do that distance. So I mean, just, just very quickly, Andy, if I can touch on the half marathon I did last Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. It's a run called the Potter's Half in Stoke-on-Trent, and I'd run it a few times before the stroke, and um, it's one of the race routes that Indira, my stroke consultant, was testing my memory on and we were both laughing about Heartbreak Hill which is a particularly tough hill on this course um, I could remember that quite clearly within hours of my stroke so I think that's that's when he probably knew I was on the way to making a good recovery but I, I ran it on Sunday and there were quite a few others wearing stroke association vests which is good to see, but a lot of runners out for the um, the local hospital charity, the uh, I mean Sanjeev can correct me, but it's the uh, UHM UHNM hospitals charity or something, and there was so many staff from the hospitals out in the race it was it's really inspiring to see and uh even better when i passed them 
No, so I was just going to ask Sanjeev as, as someone that's uh, at the forefront of thrombectomy and someone that carries these procedures out themselves. Just Sanjeev, you know, seeing the progress that Peter's made since since his treatment, just how how proud does it make you of of thrombectomy and being a, a front runner of of this treatment and and to push it and spread awareness? I think I'm absolutely thrilled to see Peter where he is now. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Peter is inspirational for not, you know, just for us, but also for all the stroke patients. He has done so many things after his stroke. He's, he has raised awareness. He's been running marathons. He's doing so many things which probably a normal person would struggle to do. So he's absolutely an inspiration. So I'm very pleased with the kind of progress Peter has made. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, there is nothing much more I can add to that. You know, just I would I'm just I'm so happy and um, you know delighted to see Peter the way he is. I think that all that's left to say for myself is thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much both for your time. Um, Peter, honestly, so inspired by his story and and how active you are. And Sanjeev, I'm thankful for you to to push this this treatment. I mean, we're all doing our best to. To spread awareness and get this in the government's faces to say, look, this can save so many lives and it needs to be accessible in so many more areas. Like Peter says at the minute, it is a bit of a, a postcode lottery when it when it comes to throwing back to me. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, um, Andy, thanks very much for giving me the chance a, to meet Sanjeev again and um, to talk about my experiences and, and just do a bit more to promote how important thrombectomies are. Thanks very much. No problem. And on one final note, for those that are interested in how the thrombectomy treatment works, uh, we did a brilliant episode with, with Sanjeev. It was one of the first episodes we did of the SR Times podcast. So be sure to check that out. And also the article that's on srtimes.co.uk this podcast is an Aspect Publishing production.